Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. As written about and taught in the United States, the history of post-World War II movies often follows this pattern. Italian neorealism and responses to neorealism, the impact of TV, Hollywood spectacle, the French New Wave and responses to the New Wave, Cold War movies, social realism, movies from Sweden, Japan, and China, Hollywood's second golden age, New German cinema, third world cinema, Hong Kong, Bollywood, Australia, and New Zealand, the rise of the blockbuster, the impact of home video, corporate synergy versus independent production, CGI, international co-production, the impact of the internet, and streaming. We might add to this movie-centric list other sociocultural experiences, including civil rights agitation, anti-colonial independence movements, gender and sexuality-based advocacy, various wars, several epidemics, and more than a handful of economic crises. Then, we might sprinkle in some famous and influential people, both inside and outside the arts, like Kennedy, Gandhi, Kubrick, Warhol, Lucas, Thatcher, Reagan, Beyonce. Finally, we drill into specific movie titles and themes we're interested in exploring. In this idiosyncratic history of post-World War II movies, we continue with Polgasari and theft. Let's note that there are countries on Earth that are difficult for a Westerner to enter. In particular, I've been long focused on the fetish object of getting a passport stamp from North Korea, among other nations, which I'm highly unlikely to ever get because I am an American by birth. Keep that in mind as we move through this exercise in discussing Polgasari, the motion picture from North Korea from 1985, which may be my only opportunity to catch a glimpse from inside North Korea from a North Korean perspective, albeit with a gigantic asterisk about that North Korean perspective. First, a kind of vocabulary lesson to set us in motion. We begin with the idea of giving tribute. As globalization has accelerated, we have seen growing points of contact between countries that were previously quite distanced from one another physically and otherwise. This sociocultural, technological, and economic exchange is often a fruitful opportunity for unlike people to realize their similarities, exchange goods and services, and bring the great wide world closer together. People often recognize the accomplishments of other groups of people they meet through this kind of globalized exchange by offering a tribute or a statement of gratitude to indicate their admiration for something they've bumped into. Tribute sometimes gives way to homage. In the arts, we commonly use this phrase homage to suggest the way that outside works are sometimes celebrated within creative work pointing out those predecessors to the current thing we're enjoying. I like referring to the word intertextuality to denote these connections because one of the great pleasures I have in consuming publicly available art is noticing how some pieces of art are deliberately making connections with other bits of art that the knowing viewer can realize, can enjoy, and that homage, that sense of purposefully making those connections is often baked into the nature of modern goods, but particularly modern movies. The next thing we realize is there is a form of homage that moves a little bit too far. We might call this appropriation. 
that whether through accidental or deliberate ignorance of a source, a creative person sometimes repurposes somebody else's original creative work inside of what they're doing, but without seeking permission. This idea of appropriation is legally questionable, especially if you're just plain ignorant, or else it can sometimes be a deliberate form of stealing, which brings to mind the final term in this quick vocabulary exercise, theft. Sometimes, when creative people cannot compete on a global scale through sociocultural exchange, through technology, through economic competition and the like, well, a fertile ground for criminality suddenly crops up. And theft means taking property that doesn't belong to you without permission from whomever it does belong to and with no intention of ever returning it. Roll all of this together and think about the nature of many movies post-World War II and what we're recognizing increasingly is that many contemporary movies are reflecting on older movies that are sometimes remaking older movies and very often using the successful techniques, character types, even whole lines of dialogue lifted from other contexts. This sometimes falls into the purview of homage, it's sometimes appropriation, sometimes it's theft. When we step into that final category, it's possible for a copyright owner, a person who has been violated of their underlying intellectual property, to sue and seek damages. But there's another layer of theft that also sometimes occurs. And that brings us to the regime of North Korea. The Kim family rose to power, and in 1950, American interests were threatened, which invited American interests in to participate in a hot war through the proxies of the South Korean army and the North Korean army, which were a battleground for Russia and China to the north and America and its allies to the south, which finally resulted in a demilitarized zone spanning the peninsula and separating North Korea from South Korea. This resolves by around 1953 or so, and at that point, North Korea under Kim Il-sung was the richer of the two halves. Over ensuing decades, however, South Korea gradually matured and became a quasi-democratic nation, indeed with authoritarian impulses, but built a strong economy that was simpatico with Western interests. Meanwhile, North Korea under Kim became increasingly isolated. By the time we reach the 1970s, Kim Il-sung's son, Kim Jong-il, was rising into his powers. It was plain that he was going to be heir apparent to his father's empire in North Korea, and the son, Il-sung, had a growing interest in media. In particular, there were edicts handed down from the Kims about how the country should be shielded from the corrupt influence of the West. But the Kims themselves were not subject to this restriction, which meant Kim Il-sung had a gigantic archive of foreign-made movies that he regularly watched, encouraging his appetite in audiovisual culture. And by the time he became a named director of affairs for his father's government, the peculiar direction he wanted to take his interests and his wealth was in making North Korean movies that would be competitive with the likes of Hollywood, but on a global scale. Understand that by the time we're in the 1970s, North Korean cinema is almost entirely devoted to propagandistically supporting the North Korean state, and that's all. The North Korean people were regularly forced 
by law to consume North Korean media and no other national media from anywhere else on earth. They were a country adrift from other strains of thought that might compete with the dominant narrative of the Kim family having saved the nation by means of its superpower, almost deity-like authority over that nation. The thing is, an insulated country like North Korea was, and still is, has a limited ability to take other influences and improve itself. Economically, this means that North Korea, from around the 1970s onward, has had an intensely difficult time feeding its people. It has had an intensely difficult time creating hard goods like trucks and cars. It has had a difficult time building infrastructure. It has had a difficult time running utilities. In terms of movies, though, what it lacked were people trained outside of North Korea with a select few who had been trained at film schools in the Soviet Union. So, there became this goofy governmental policy in North Korea to purposefully send out special agents into nearby countries and kidnap foreign nationals who presumptively had expertise in areas that North Koreans had none. Here's where things take a turn. Earlier I described tribute moving its way into theft by a vocabulary lesson, but theft has another scale. And remembering that we're aiming our sights on the movie Polgasari, perhaps the most famous and infamous North Korean movie ever, but that big hanging asterisk is important because it was in fact made by a South Korean man. From this point, a small digression. A few years ago, I listened to an interview by a writer named Paul Fisher. He's also a filmmaker and he's an historian, and he wrote a book called A Kim Jong-il Production, The Extraordinary True Story of a Kidnapped Filmmaker, His Star Actress, and a Young Dictator's Rise to Power. In this book, Paul Fisher describes the way that North Korean agents kidnapped the filmmaker Shin Sang-ok, who had been one of the primary figures of South Korean cinema from the 50s through the 1970s. Over that time, he had ascended and made his own movie-making studio. He also had a complicated personal life with various relationships beyond his marriage, and he was married to a woman who was perhaps the greatest star of South Korean cinema in the immediate post-war years. Shin and his wife... Choi Yun-hee, or Madam Choi, were very powerful figures in South Korean popular cultures. They were well allied and placed with the leaders of the country, and they were largely given free reign to produce the kinds of movies they wished to produce. By the time we reach the middle 1970s, Madam Choi is a fading star, entering her deep middle age, and her husband Sang Ok Shin has had a love affair resulting in children out of wedlock. Their marriage has dissolved to nearly nothing. But in the middle of all of that, King Jong-il from North Korea dispatch agents who kidnap Shin Sang Ok, place him in prison, and he waits there for a period of years for who knows what reason. Along the way, Madam Choi is also kidnapped by agents of Kim Jong-il and brought to another kind of a holding facility, not quite a prison. Eventually, in the early 1980s, the two are reunited under the proviso that they now redo their marriage vows, become a publicly married couple, and do the bidding of Kim Jong-il, which is to create a North Korean 
cinematic tradition on par with the world's greatest talents, whether that's in London or Hollywood, and raise the profile of North Korea as a dominant cultural producer for the world to now reckon with. They agree because it's a way to feed themselves when they've been on starvation diets for a period of years. They agree because it's a way to avoid being made uncomfortable for him in true imprisonment and for her in a complete surveilled circumstance. For both of them, it was a way to continue being filmmakers and, in her part, being an actress and film producer while trying to figure out the means of their escape. Several movies later, several attempts to appease Kim Jong-il, and he was happy with their work, they hatched a plan for a monster movie. So now we shift into it. Polgasari is a Godzilla story. The basic gist is we're in a kind of medieval time looking at a village centered on a blacksmith who has a daughter. The blacksmith's apprentice is in love with the daughter. The blacksmith knows this, and there is an open rebellion working against the king. One day, the blacksmith learns that there is a cache of weapons being hidden nearby. He also realizes that the king's army is out sweeping through the hills to find these rebels that they are going to bring to justice, and the king's minions are gobbling up the resources of every village that they meet, taking all of the metal used in these villages for things like cooking pots. By doing this, the king is forcing his people into starvation because they will no longer be able to till the soil while the king builds up his armaments to put down the rebels. It's a vicious, terrible cycle. The blacksmith says no. He is imprisoned. He is starved. And just before death, he takes a small provision of rice. His daughter is thrown to him in the hopes that her father might survive one more day and imbues this ball of rice with the shape of his spirit a so-called Polgasari, that he hopes will avenge him, and he dies. His spirit translates into this small sculpture of a lizard-like character. The daughter of the blacksmith brings this creature home and accidentally pinpricks it one day while trying to make some homespun clothing. Her blood, combined with her father's spirit inside of this rice-mashed sculpture, begins to grow. The Polgasari eats metal, and by eating metal, it grows larger and larger, until finally the blacksmith's apprentice and the blacksmith's daughter, whose love affair is perpetually suspended by circumstance, begin to lead an open rebellion against the king, because the giant Polgasari, which again continues to grow and grow and grow as it eats more metal, proves to be their super tank against the minions of the king. Various battles ensue, and by the conclusion of the movie, the blacksmith's apprentice is killed at war. The king is trampled underfoot because the Polgasari ultimately defeats him, whereupon the blacksmith's daughter recalls the spirit of her father, removes the magic of what made the Polgasari possible, and dies, causing the Polgasari to disappear. That's an overlong take on what amounts to a Godzilla movie. Now, I have to pause here and tell you that Polgasari for many years has been a fetish object unavailable to most Western people. You will find a free copy out on YouTube. I purchased my copy because I'm that kind of a person, but the deal is you couldn't find a copy of this before around 10 years ago when a distributor was able to finally digitize a copy of this and distribute it on DVD, whereupon I'm sure somebody pirated it and put it out onto YouTube. The thing to remember as you think about Pulgasari is that it employs 
hundreds of extras. Indeed, a whole army of people are the king's army. A whole army of other people are the rebels rising up against the king. And in between, we have very lovingly quaffed, costume and made-up performers as our central cast, but really the whole of Polgasari is an allegory. I'm sure Kim Jong-il was sold on this project because there is a large speech that the blacksmith's daughter gives at the end of the movie. Her speech signifies what capitalism's ills are, because she says out loud, the Polgasari eats the metals, and all we can do is turn the Polgasari and send it after a new enemy. It will always grow and expand by consuming, which is always the complaint by anti-capitalists about what capitalism does. Consume, consume. Create resources, consume resources, consume, consume. That's the capitalist thing turned into a caricature, and that's Polgasari. No doubt that captured the attention of Kim Jong-il, who thought to himself, if we can make a wonderful monster movie that captivates the attention of people across the world, they will be won over to our point of view. What's weird is he didn't understand that the other 90 minutes of the movie, before we get to that concluding speech, is about a king who is bankrupting, starving out, and murdering his people by stealing all of their resources to make better armaments for his army to put down rebels who would assault him or fight against his edicts from on high. Remembering that the Kim family fully organized North Korea to suit their own ends, this is a strange story. In other words, we're watching a parable about why it is that capitalism is terrible, made by an authoritarian regime that controls its people in a communistic and socialistically organized society that is closed off from the rest of the world. And yet, the story is about people in open rebellion against exactly that type of leader, and he is killed on screen at the end of the movie, whereupon we get the counter capitalism message that concludes the overall story. Watching it today is a strange whiplash feeling. The extant copies of this movie showcase rather bad audiovisual material. The copy of a copy of a copy that has been in distribution is not of a very high quality. The imagery does not look all that good, even though you can sort of squint and see through to the effort to make a lushly production design backdrop for this Polgasari monster. Considering this is a 1985 release and there was a limited ability to do creature effects, Kim Jong-il hired a Japanese technician who had indeed literally worked on some of the Godzilla and Godzilla-adjacent movies of that period to make a lifelike costume worn over a human body. But even so, some of the details of that creature are goofy. It has big bulging eyes and never blinks. It moves all right, but is clumsy and on and on. Some of the SFX are sort of laughably bad. Not much better than what you and I would make in our backyard right now if we brought out our phones and in two hours got our neighborhood friends together to make a movie. But 
there are signature things that suggest there was real lavish attention and effort put onto this movie. For example, there is a lot of camera work that sweeps across a given sequence, probably on a dolly. The editorial strategy of this movie is to drop us in media res. We don't get establishing shots that tell us exactly where we are. We simply get the next scene of the next sequence reacting to what we just experienced with very little transition. We also have experiments with temporal design, which can either be written off as amateurish or as a signal for a very alert viewer. What do I mean? Well, there can be a group of the king's soldiers fighting the Polgasari against a gigantic field and they're being beaten quite badly. We cut to looking at close-ups of the rebels viewing the battlefield, but we know from the way the battlefield was shot, the rebels were nowhere near it. I can't recommend this movie to most people, because for most people, it's likely to be coded as a bad movie-going experience. But if a person is able to watch Polgasari with a greater understanding that a kidnapped auteur from South Korea and his wife were put in charge of making a series of movies that finally arrive at this allegorical story of the bankruptcy of a king putting down his people only to have those people overcome him with a monster made by a man, Kim, doing exactly that to his own people in North Korea, you have a rich context to unpack one of those globally strange movies that most people have, one, never heard of, two, are unlikely to be interested in seeing, and three, would have a hard time finding a copy of, and yet four, may enjoy themselves against the serious intention of this movie. It's a goof of a movie that can be quite enjoyable if you watch it in circumstances with people willing to shout back at the screen, much like Mystery Science Theater 3000, because this is a movie that demands audience participation in pointing out the mistakes of craft, of storytelling, but also celebrating the effort to employ so many hundreds of people at making a Godzilla ripoff using a kidnapped artisan to uphold a regime that the globe believes to be a completely bankrupt nation. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boobity-doo!